0: Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 11th, 2023, and my guest is historian Jennifer Burns of Stanford University, where she is associate professor of history and a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. She was first here in October of 2017 talking about Ayn Rand. Her latest book and the topic of today's conversation is Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. Jennifer, welcome back to Econ Talk.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Russ. It's great to be here.
0: This book is really quite an achievement. It is a deep intellectual biography of a famous person, but I you could even argue you could still argue is underappreciated, and I would say it's also an economic history of the 20th century. So, brava! It's an amazing achievement. Thank you, thank you. Let's start with um, any biases or preconceptions you came to the book with. Um, Milton Friedman is a controversial figure in many circles. Um, How did you approach this this topic?
1: So, yeah, I think I came mostly with ignorance, but certainly with some biases and preconceptions. When I started, I thought I was most interested in Friedman as sort of a pundit, um, a public figure, a public intellectual, um, someone who had kind of packaged ideas for mass consumption because um, I had looked at Ayn Rand that way and I looked at Ayn Rand as a sort of vehicle for... Um, ideas promulgated through fiction, which I thought was really interesting. So I kind of came to Friedman that way. And so um, the first thing that I was surprised by was that I found his economics so much more interesting, actually, than his punditry. once I got going into the project. Um, And related to that was I think the biggest misconception I had was about the New Deal and about... Um, economists' reactions to the New Deal. And so in the kind of first stage of research, I was digging through the archives at the University of Chicago, and I kept finding these memos that Friedman's professors had sent to um, the you know high figures in the government. Um, it was called the Chicago Plan, and it was what they thought should be done to address the Great Depression. And these memos were urgent. They were sweeping. They called for massive federal intervention in the banking system, massive federal relief programs. And I was like, wait a second, this is the Chicago school, which is supposed to be like, let markets rip. Who cares what happens if you get what's coming to you? And so that sort of shook me to see that I had envisioned a certain set of responses, stylized responses, I thought that Friedman's professors would have had, and I thought that he would have been educated in. And it was, that wasn't true at all. And so that kind of reset my clock a little bit to like, okay, what is happening here? Um, what do I actually know as opposed to what I think I know? And I, I didn't know that much. So I sort of taught myself through the archive, through reading other historians of economics, um, through drawing on what I knew about the broader picture of American history, and to try to put together exactly, as you say, a, a broader history of both economics and economic thought in the 20th century with Friedman as my lens into that.
0: And I want to salute you. You know, your first book was on Ayn Rand, another controversial figure. I have my own biases, but I felt you were extremely even-handed in this book. Now, that's not the right word. Fair, thoughtful, an an historian, novel, but a crazy idea. (laughs) And I I say that with sarcasm because tragically to me, so many modern historians have written about economics and uh, economists with – I would say um, a, a strong bias, and we're all biased, that's part of life, but you really, um, I thought it was a, a very uh, objective and, but not a hagiography at all. I mean, there's many, many criticisms of Friedman in it, many of which I was unaware of. I know a lot of them, but mm-hmm. not all of them, so it was just, a, it's an extremely interesting book, and, you know, you start, you're talking about the New Deal, Chicago wasn't Chicago in 1935, uh, and Friedman wasn't Friedman. And the other part of this book that I loved is how you try to capture the evolution of his thinking. And, right. you know, his his books are mostly, his books for the public are, are mainly in the second part of his career. But there's right. so much more to his academic career, and, and your effort to integrate the two is really... Um, superb.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think what I came to realize is that just as I sort of thought of him as a pundit, you know, a lot of people around today that they kind of got the tail end of Friedman's career. You know, they got the Friedman in the limelight, the Friedman as representative of a certain political synthesis, a certain political movement. And, you know, they got a snippet of him and not the full picture. And so I really wanted to bring the full picture back and show... How the ideas that he later became famous for promoting sort of grew and developed out of this academic matrix, out of the actual events that happened in the world, um, the challenge of inflation, uh, you know, ins and outs of Keynesian economics, sort of all of that. And so when you see Friedman in the 80s as the kind of exemplar of Reaganism, that's definitely part of the story, but it's the end of the story. It's not the full story.
0: Let's talk about the title. Milton Friedman, the last conservative. Why did you choose that part after the colon, uh, the last conservative part, and why were you uneasy about that?
1: So, um, there's a couple ways in which I think of Friedman as a conservative, and I'm aware he didn't call himself a conservative. He didn't want to be labeled a conservative. I've gotten pushback that uh, with this idea that he's a conservative, and so there's a couple ways I mean it. One is in a sort of transcendent meaning of uh, somebody who does their best to preserve the, um, you know, inheritances or practices of the past and carry them into the future. And I think that actually describes his economics very well. So he did a great deal to preserve the kind of methods and approaches of institutional economics, even though he's not an institutional economist, but he believed in empirical research, um, you know, basing his theories on um, data from the real world. And he stuck with that. And, um, you know, at a time when a lot of the economics field was turning in another direction. Um, similarly, he stuck with the quantity theory of money. He said, there's something here. Um, let's update it. Let's refresh it. But let's not cast it aside and say, oh, that's an old idea that no longer matters. So I think intellectually speaking, in terms of the orientation of his mind, he was someone who looked to existing or past ideas and tried to find out what was still like, valid in them and how they could still be used. So that, to my mind, is a a sort of conservative bent. Um, And then the other reason really was because he was associated throughout his life with this political movement that called itself conservative. And American conservatism is, you know, different than conservatism in the broader Western tradition in that it's often embraces capitalism and is linked to capitalism. And Friedman really exemplifies that, whereas... You know, in maybe the European intellectual tradition, it's more suspicious of capitalism because the conservative tradition there is more bent on um, holding up, you know, different social hierarchies or formations that could be threatened by capitalism. So I'm aware that American conservatism is sort of its own unique um, version of the creed, and I have written plenty on that. And I'm also aware that Friedman said, I'm not a conservative, but... Just empirically speaking, if you look at the causes he took up, the people he spent time with, the politicians he admired, they all called themselves conservatives. So I felt like, hey, I get it, but this is the case. Um, You know, he was very clear in his sort of uh, uh, partisan identification.
0: So why why is he the last conservative?
1: Right. Why is he the last? And I think that's a bit of a provocation or a question. Um, but I think Friedman really exemplifies this 20th century American conservatism synthesis, which tried to draw together, um, an emphasis on tradition, uh, an affection for or belief in capitalism, free markets, free trade, and in opposition to communism. And these three strands really sort of came together, um, in a variety of different ways. And they pushed aside a more moderate Republicanism and they mounted a very effective challenge um, to liberal politics and liberal governance. And I see Friedman as really a sort of apogee of that. And I think that we are in a time of, of not seeing that synthesis hold in quite the same way. I'm not completely convinced it's gone and will never come back. I don't think that's the case at all, but I think the pressures and questions that forge that synthesis Primarily the op- opposition to the Soviet bloc and the Soviet Union, those pressures are gone and we have a different set of pressures and we have a different set of questions, um, about, you know, globalization. And uh, now that we've seen it in practice for, you know, 25 years where we hadn't before. So I think the, the pieces are different. Um, the other thing that's really, you know, different from the conservatism of Friedman's time and, and what is called conservatism today is I think uh, in Friedman's time, it, there was a significant part of it that was driven by ideas. It really was in many ways an intellectual movement. And Friedman really exemplifies that, that he um, based his ideas on research and on being in a discipline, an academic discipline, um, and really trying to think through um, what were some different approaches. So I think it was a much more intellectual movement um, rather than being driven by personality or mood or emotion.
0: And it's certainly his version had none of the nationalism that is at the heart of modern conservatism around the globe, uh, none of the populism. He's a um, – in that sense, I agree with you. He is in many ways the last conservative. And a little later, we'll talk about whether you know whether that was – is it's the end of an era or not? But uh, in some sense, it's certainly – you could make the case – Uh, Now, I know quite a a bit about Milton. I've read a good chunk of his work, not as much as you, I bet, which is really impressive uh, because I I bet you read a lot more than I did, and his other papers, uh, which are voluminous, his correspondence and so on that are in the archive at at the Hoover Institution. But there were two things I did not know much about that your book really illuminated. Uh, One was the role of Henry Simons. Mm -hmm. So talk briefly about that. I'm probably more interested in that than the average listener, but tell us a little bit about Henry Simons and his influence on the Chicago School as it came to be under Milton.
1: Yeah, I actually was very fascinated by Henry Simons as well. So um, Friedman did the first part of his graduate training at the University of Chicago, and Henry Simons was an assistant professor um, who really became sort of a guru figure to Friedman and his friends. And he really, um, first of all, he was an architect of those memos to the federal government, the Chicago Plan. He was really the kind of mover and shaker behind that, calling for a restructuring of the banking system. This idea he had called 100% money, which basically would have eliminated fractional reserve banking entirely. It would have radically changed the banking system. Instead, we had the Banking Act, but 100% money was something that <clears throat> Friedman was talking about way into the 60s. Um, Simons also wrote this book called A Positive Program for Laissez-Faire. And I think this was really the biggest influence on Friedman. He um, saw himself as a classical liberal. Um, He saw liberalism as being endangered. And so he also believed that you could use the principles of classical liberalism to design what he called progressive social programs so that liberalism just shouldn't just be something that said no, 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 but actually had um, creative potential to come up with new and different policy proposals.
0: And this is the liberalism of, it's classical liberalism, meaning limited government, personal responsibility, and as you say, for many people that just means well, we're against too much regulation, we're against excessive taxation, we're or maybe any taxation, impossible, et cetera, et cetera. And and Simons and a lot of Friedman, I think, i much more appreciated after reading your book. Uh, was trying to square that circle of, he didn't like government, but he knew the world had to have some, but so how much? And he was constantly trying to make his worldview consistent with some.
1: Yeah, let me, let me make a few other points about Simon's. He He valued what he called the heart of the contract, the ability of people to freely contract. And he worried about um, interference in that. And also he's writing at a time when our modern understanding of liberal, New Deal liberalism, it's really formed in the New Deal by Franklin Roosevelt. So that word is in flux. So he wanted to protect, um, you know, the, the, the heart of the contract, free contract, um, but he also worried a lot about inequality. And this was uh, important to him. It was an important to Friedman's teachers. And they basically felt if capitalism generates too much inequality, it will not be able to survive. And inequality is bad unto itself. You know, free, uh, uh, uh Simon's went so far as to call equality his religion. And so while a positive program for laissez-faire was a, a classical liberal tract, it also called for government ownership of railroads, Um of utilities. So, in ways that you think, what? Like, this isn't conservative at all. This isn't free market at all. I really think of Simon, so, as coming out of a sort of late 19th century um, populist context in some ways, um, where he was wanting to support the small producer, the independent entrepreneur. That was kind of his desideratum. I also think he was, in many ways, a, a Georgist a, a, in the tradition of Henry George, who you know would basically say, we need one giant tax, right? Let's tax all land basically and then nothing else. So so Simons wanted a few big interventions and then let the rest go. And so that was a very influential model for Friedman early in his career. What happens is that Simons dies right as Friedman comes back to Chicago. It seems from all the evidence we have to have been a suicide. And what really fascinated me was you could see the legacy of Simons continue and then eventually sort of fade out. And for me, one of the big questions is what if Henry Simons had lived? Um what would be different in our understanding of economics and, and what would be different with Friedman?
0: Yeah, and I the part about contract, uh, a good piece of the a good chunk of the early part of your book is about the Almost religious devotion that free marketers like Friedman or myself or Hayek have for prices as signals and the power of economics as thinking about prices um, and and what their role is and there's this theme and it's it's in the book but it, it's you you could have written more about it even which is that let's let's give people money but don't distort the prices don't give them Uh, don't distort the market for housing, don't distort the market for health. If you're worried about poor people, give them money and let them then choose what they care about most and let the prices then emerge from their choices that steer resources to their highest use. And that, uh, it's interesting, you, you capture how that grew out of an earlier tradition, really going back to Marshall and the seductive nature of uh, market forces for most of us who study economics. It's it's what we fall in love with, and it's clear that Friedman fell in love with it. And you write about it, most people don't know. Friedman taught price theory at Chicago and macro. He taught uh, money and banking, it, but he, his big class was price theory. He was a micro-economist. I'm looking around my my shelf, I've got two of them, one's over here, one's back there. Somewhere on this shelf is Price Theory by Milton Friedman, which was a samizdat, a compendium of his notes that his students eventually turned into a book. Uh, but he cared deeply about that part of economics, which was way ahead of his time in a, in a way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what, what Simon's sort of beginning insight was that that Friedman carried on <clears throat> or or hope was that the price mechanism itself could be used to generate social goods. So rather than assume the price mechanism is the problem and the solution is to regulate or inhibit the price mechanism, instead, why don't we structure it so that people's natural desire to barter and truck um, or to get a deal is actually used to create some of the social goods we want. And so I think Simons really sort of set that out. And Simons was also willing to write to the newspaper, willing to promote his work, And um, there are definitely some economists who thought, no, I should stay in my ivory tower, and then some who thought they should engage the world. And Simons really was a model of engaging the world.
0: Yeah, and and until I read your book, I didn't really appreciate how many of Milton's um, controversies revolved around prices and price control. So he's got his rent control uh, pamphlet with Stigler that we yeah. talked about in this program with Mike Munger, listeners. We'll put a link up to that if you missed it. Where he they they go against rent control, but they get tangled into other stuff, and yeah. uh, they go against uh, the imposition of price controls uh, in the uh, in the seventies drives Milton crazy, right. and you know so he's he had a thing about it. I think he was right, by the way. I don't think it was a I don't think it was a, a, a misplaced obsession, but he did have a thing about it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. The other thing I wanted to to bring out that you talk about is uh, the role of women in his intellectual life. Uh, fantastic job doing that and um, rescuing Anna Jacobson Schwartz from some level of obscurity, certainly in modern times and maybe even her own. So talk about uh, the women that you write about there.
1: Yeah, that was, again, something I hadn't expected to find and just came at me as I read his work and as I looked in the archive, like wait a second, like, why, why are so many of his works co-authored with women? Like, that seems strange. And I came to think of that as kind of his secret weapon. And I think that uh, more so than other male economists of his generation, Friedman had the ability to sort of look at the person in front of them and see their intellect rather than their gender. And instead of assuming this is a woman who has nothing to say because women can't do math or women can't do economics— to kind of see it to the actual person and say, well, what do they have to contribute? And so I think that was like this huge asset. And I don't want to say, you know, he was a feminist or he had modern gender, you know, standards or norms or didn't have stereotypes. All of that is there, but he also did have the ability to see beyond that. So um, Schwartz is probably the most famous example. So I try to document the different... Aspects of their relationship, what she contributed to the book. Um, I think that is honestly its own separate project. And I would love to see someone dig into that more because there's a huge archive for both of them. And she, I think, deserves her own biography. The book um,
0: being the monetary history of the United a States. The monetary
1: history of the United States. Right. And what's really, I found this just fascinating episode where, um, you know, they get to the publication of the, mon- the monetary history and, Schwartz is like, you know, tells Milton, well, you know, I'd, I'd really like to use this book as my doctoral dissertation. And he's like, what do you mean? Like, you don't have a doctorate? And she's <laughs> like, no, the, the faculty at Columbia are telling me that this book is not doctoral quality, <laughs> doctoral standards. And so he gets really mad because it's kind of an insult to him too. Like, what? Like, why? And so he literally has to call and sort of chew out the chair of the Columbia Department and they're like, okay, fine, we'll give her a doctorate, but that just really stood out to me that the faculty in her own department just they had the evidence of her contribution before them and they just couldn't see it or wouldn't see it. It just just economics was a boys' club and they didn't want to let her in. So, so that's one one of the stories I tell.
0: Yeah, the the you have to remember, listeners, that this is the early 1960s and Milton Friedman's not Milton Friedman yet because that book isn't out and. Chewing out the chair of the Columbia Economics Department is not that effective, possibly, but it did work. Um, that that book, uh, which I think is one of the great works of economics, um, you really do, do an excellent job in in talking about how it evolved with with in his work with her. But talk about the other economists he worked with, as well as his wife, um, in his in his uh, in his other research.
1: Yeah, so there's another um, book that's less well-known except among economists, The Theory of the Consumption Function. And this book came out of Friedman's engagement with women researchers in consumption economics, which was kind of a side field that women were shunted into because they were thought to be good at shopping, so they could study shopping. And um, he had uh, uh, there was a woman that was friends with both he and Dorothy, he and Rose Dorothy Brady, who was a researcher in this field. And then there was Margaret Reed, who went on to become his colleague at Chicago and. Friedman sort of picked up a letter that Dorothy had sent to Rose and said, well, I have some ideas. And they started a correspondence and then they would all come and visit um, their summer home in New Hampshire. And basically they kind of had a mind meld where the women were showing him the research and they were puzzling over how to think it through. And Friedman had some ideas and they had some ideas. And eventually this is the context in which it was written up, which I don't think is heretofore known is Friedman was trying to get Margaret Reed and Dorothy Brady hired at Chicago. He wanted them to be his colleagues. And this was part of a sort of power struggle he was going through at Chicago. But also what's really unique about Chicago is they always had one woman on the faculty. This is other economics departments did not have that. So they had sort of a one woman quota and the woman who had held the job was retiring. And so they were looking for another one. So Friedman, in order to make the case that they should hire not one, but two women started writing up this idea they had been talking about. And that's what grew into the book, The Theory of the Consumption Function. Um, So now he did succeed in getting one hired, not the other. Um, And the book is really interesting. I, I really puzzled over it because you can see over time, you know, in his private correspondence, Friedman over time becomes more possessive of it. But in the early stages, he really thinks of it as a joint project. And he says in the book's introduction, this is a joint project. But there's only one name on the cover, and that's the name of Milton Friedman. So, um, yeah, there's there's a little bit of acknowledgement, but, but not what we would consider sufficient today.
0: Yeah, I think part of that was he probably thought this was sort of an interesting side project that might be of value. And then it turned out to be one of the cornerstones of the case against Keynesianism. And I think he probably got a little more possessive. And may, maybe correctly so, I don't know. He may have appreciated the impact of it more than his co-workers, but certainly uh, he could have been uh, more, um, uh, shared more of the credit. You
1: know, it's also interesting to me that his the one of the primary collaborators, Margaret Reed, she was asked Friedman to write it up. She sort of pressured him to do it. And I think, well, why did she do that? Why didn't she just write it up herself? And I think she sort of perceived that like, this is going to go further with him as the author. You know, like if I have him to cite for my research, that's ultimately going to benefit my research where like, I mean, they weren't giving her a workshop. There were so many reasons for her to think like, this idea will not prosper if it is linked to me. So you might think of her as kind of giving her child away to the better parent, given the circumstances of the time.
0: Mm, Yeah, fascinating. Uh, Marguerite was at Chicago when I was there. She was a-
1: Oh, interesting.
0: She was not a young woman. She had a ghostly presence. I would see her walking halls and um and I remember mentioning her name to to some faculty member and saying, "You know like who is she? why is she here i've never she never talks and he says something like, oh, she's really smart <laughs> so she was something in her heyday. She was not in her heyday when I encountered her unfortunately yeah, um." Yeah. Lastly, the last thing I want to mention that I appreciate in your book is that uh, his view of econometrics, um, as you mentioned a minute ago, he cared a lot about data. He was very much an empirical economist. He disdained much of the Austrian economics tradition because they were uh, not data-driven in his mind. And I think that's a fair criticism. Uh, but he was not a fan of uh, – macroeconomic models or even econometrics generally and, and fought, I did not realize, relentlessly with the Cows Commission, which started at Chicago and eventually ended up at Yale, but he basically pushed him out. It's yeah. the way you're telling.
1: Yeah. So that is also really interesting to me because I hadn't realized, I just sort of thought coming into the project, like economics and math are kind of the same thing. Yeah. And I hadn't realized how how vociferously he fought against not just against math but even against modeling like extensive modeling he just thought you can get carried away with the beauty of your own model and you have to always be testing 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 so um yeah he fought very viciously against this other um group of economists who were kind of pushing it more in the not so much even modeling but bringing in more sophisticated mathematical techniques and so this had a couple of results and and one thing I should say is At that moment, most of the modelers and mathematicians were using the models and the math to design interventions into the economy. So there was a political difference with them, but there was also, I think, even more so an epistemological difference. You know, Friedman thought we simply don't know enough and the economy is too complicated to really model it and to base a plan on the model. We have to be much simpler, sort of paradoxically, to to be able to capture the complexity and so, um, I just, I found that so fascinating. I think it's, it's an interesting episode in the sort of history of science or the history of the discipline. And as a result, Friedman was really considered a crank and deeply unfashionable and sort of the subject of ridicule because, um, you know, he was doing things like trying to add up bank vault cash, you know, and figure out how much money there was in the economy instead of creating uh you know a general equilibrium model that would predict whether we were going to go into recession or not or how big the multiplier is or what the budget should be um he just wasn't thinking in those terms at all and i think as you noted it was when the monetary history landed and had this incredible and convincing sort of revisionist take on why the great depression was so bad and lasted so long that, that really arrested um, his colleagues and the field. And that's really after that, he sort of set the weather in economics, I would say for a good 10 to 15 years after that.
0: Yeah, it's, um, in a way, you, know, you mentioned that the rational expectations movement, part of, of macro that is associated with Bob Lucas and, and Tom Sargent, uh, that, that they were, they grew out of his work, but, of course, the Lucas Critique, which is about the challenge of intervening in the economy, given that the uh, people who are um, doing the acting have expectations, and it's um, problematic to try to do that effectively. That is just what you just said a minute ago is is a old-fashioned version of the Lucas Critique, that it's yeah, too complicated I mean- and-
1: <laughs> Although the Lucas critique was couched in the very type of models that Friedman opposed. And so oh, exa- I think- oh, Of course. It just, I think it's its like his bastard child, basically. Like, yeah. And he, he had a lot of ambivalence about rational expectations, especially in private. He tended to be more supportive in public, but um, yeah, they were kind of reaching his conclusions, but not with his methods. And he actually did think the methods were really important. And so- I'm not sure what he would make of sort of where we are today. The other thing I think he had trouble reconciling was that a lot of the insights of monetarism were incorporated in what became called the new Keynesian economics. And I think that would have bothered him for sure. him out a
0: little bit, yeah.
1: But um, I do think that's why he's so influential a figure, because his ideas became detached from the sort of disciplinary, the, the heterodox disciplinary strain that they once embodied and became more conventional wisdom. I mean, the way that we pay attention to the Fed and we worry about inflation, like all of this type of thing is, the, is a long tail of Friedman.
0: The irony is, is that while Lucas took that version of Friedman you gave and gussied it up with fancy math, Friedman accepted methodologically to some extent the Keynesian Revolution and destroyed it from within by saying, okay, you're going to play by these rules, I'll play by them too, and I'll show you that even with those rules, a lot of your your, uh, implications don't hold. So he, um, I think he would have preferred not to have done that maybe, but (laughs) Lucas did the same thing in a way. Yeah. Let's talk about his legacy. Um, Let's do it in two parts. First, as an academic economist, and then as, a, as what we might call a public intellectual, policy, political economist—you sometimes you call him at, at, at one point. Uh, let's start with the academic part. What you've hinted at it already, but what do you see as his most important legacy? Um,
1: I think probably the single most important is is that reinterpretation with Schwartz of the Great Depression of focusing on the role of the central bank and the banking system in that crisis. And I think that's become the playbook that we still live with today. There's a financial crisis. The central bank must take responsibility and must flood the economy with money quickly and not let it get too bad. And you see that, you know, I think the first place you really see that is Greenspan after the 87 crash. He's like, you know, the Federal Reserve stands by. You see it in the GFC. You see it in the Corona crisis. So I think you can, um, you know, Friedman deserves some of the credit, not all, for the fact that we haven't had another Great Depression. I think obviously there were regulations that stabilized the banking system, but also the sense that um, the Federal Reserve has a role to play or that it it is a liquidity crisis and we know what to do in that crisis. I think that's probably the biggest one. I think the second one is related, the um, sort of understanding of the centrality of the central bank and the price level in the paradoxical way that Friedman belabored and belabored, which is when things are, when it's doing its job, like you shouldn't notice at all. Um, and so basically it's this incredibly important institution, this incredibly important aspect of economic life that can't really make things better but can make them a lot worse. And so there's sort of a passivity to when things are going well um, that it sort of fades into the background. And I think honestly that has been our experience in the past 25 years or so. like and nobody's been really interested in inflation. No one's talked about it. We've had a fairly steady price level. We sort of forgot it was an issue. Um, and so then suddenly it's an issue and you kind of come roaring back and see like, oh, a few mistakes by you know, a few people in this key institution can really have broad ramifications. So I think those are parts of it. I think you know, uh, other economists might point to the permanent income hypothesis, which is part of the consumption function as still being a kind of live idea that economists work with. I do think in terms of the monetary policy and influence, you know, people aren't looking at the money supply. It sort of seems like maybe they should be a little bit more. but um, they're not using all his technical tools, but I think of him as kind of having diffused into the water of central bankers around the world, um, the importance of their role, you know, what it means. And I also think we could see this kind of 2% inflation target, you know, inflation targeting is not the same thing as a monetary growth role, but growth rule, but they're, they're genetically related yeah. and the monetary growth rule set out this idea of rules over discretion. Um, which again, I, you know, I didn't bring this up uh, in Simons, but let me go back to Simons. What Simons really emphasized was rules and a framework within which competition should be allowed to play. And he um, had this famous article, Rules Versus Discretion in Monetary Policy. And he said, you know, the monetary authorities ought to follow rules that are transparent, that are set out, um, that we can know about, that aren't hidden behind some cloak, and then um that would be better for the economy versus this kind of discretionary piece. Now, we have a discretionary monetary policy today, but we also have things like the Taylor rule or Taylor rules, which are these incredibly powerful heuristics that are used to kind of judge and evaluate how the discretionary policy is going. And so the Taylor rule really goes straight back to um Friedman and Simons, you know, just goes right through that lineage. So I think those are some of the ways he's left his mark not just on academic economists, but on policymakers and the kind of giant apparatus, financial apparatus that surrounds <clears throat> central banking uh today.
0: The only thing I would add to that is the role of expectations. We mentioned yeah. rational expectations a minute ago, but I guess and I might even add the distinction between real and nominal variables. Yeah. Uh, that corrected for an interest rate that looks high could be actually low because inflation is high. And I'm sure other people wrote about it and talked about it but he destroyed in the academic world in 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 my view, or forced a radical revisionism of Keynesianism through the permanent income hypothesis. We're not going to go into why and how. You can look that up, folks. But also the Phillips curve, which was seen as an incredibly reliable uh, policy relationship between unemployment and inflation. And he said, and this is one of the most, I think, rare moments where economists made a prediction that had a deep theoretical basis that turned out to be true he said, it's not going to stay this way, this trade-off, because expectations will adjust. And, you know, yes, eventually Edmund Phelps wrote about it in a similar way with a more theoretical underpinning. But he basically got it right, Friedman did at that point. Yeah. Now, Keynesianism, of course, it's he's, you have to have a very big wooden stake or a lot of garlic to uh, put that uh, vampire to rest. It's very appealing. But, you know, in my lifetime, it was the status quo. And then it was, well, of course, it's it's dead. And then it's, well, there's no alternative. <laughs> so we've got this incredibly, I think, embarrassing for my profession roller coaster uh, uh, about that. But he played the central role in that uh, in, in so many ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm realizing, yeah, to answer the question of what is his contribution, <laughs> this is probably like 10 points. But I would say what I try to emphasize in the book is sometimes— Um, sometimes there's an impression that like these economists sort of cooked up these ideas and got the politicians to go along and changed everything for the worse. And then what I really try to show is these ideas interacted very powerfully with what actually happened. So, you know, Friedman had a theoretical take on the fact that the Phillips curve was a short run trade-off, not a long run trade-off. And that wasn't enough to change people's minds. It took the next five to 10 years for people's minds to change. So it's not the ideas... It's how the ideas help people understand the reality that they're experiencing, you know, and I would say, um, so, so yeah, that, that is something I, I really want to emphasize. And I try to show in the book by kind of moving between his ideas and the actual events as they unfold in the world. And as you said, the, um, the distinction between real and nominal interest rates, which is still not really well understood, especially if you read kind of top line media coverage of what's going on, you know, monetary policy is super tight. I'm like, is it really tight? I'd actually think we still have negative interest rates, you know, like so. So, but, but people aren't really talking about that. But again, it took the seventies when you had incredibly high inflation and incredibly high interest rates for people to understand, like, oh, this is exactly what Friedman said could happen that interest rates behave differently in an inflationary environment. And I just, it's been so interesting to watch. Um, I think the the financial sector in particular has just a very short memory and little knowledge of history and the fact that so many people have been proceeding as if the low interest rates of the past 15 years, 15, 20 years are this day to play when historically they're extraordinarily low. And there's no reason to expect they would stay that way forever. But so many bankers and financial institutions made decisions as if they would. So that's my plug for understanding more history.
0: Hey, hey, uh, it's great that you say that because um, when I interviewed Milton in 2006, and listeners can go back to those two episodes, they were in early, early days of Econ Talk, and I I wish I could interview him again. Um, I'd do a better job. But anyway, I asked him you know, how proud he must be of his book with Anna Jacobs from Schwartz, The Monetary History of the United States, because it forced people to c- confront that Inflation was everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. And he laughed at me and he said, no, 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 my book didn't do that. (laughs) He said it was when New Zealand's central banker cut the money supply. I think it was Don Brash is his name. He said, and then inflation disappeared. And they went like, oh, I guess that's what does it. (laughs) And he said that about when I asked him why uh, there was no taste for price controls on on, uh, energy at the time. There had been some run-up, I guess, and I was asking about. It. He said, "I said, well, that's a contribution of economics." He said, "No, it's not." He said, "That's because people had experienced the price controls in the '70s, and they hated it. And when those people die off, it's going to come in back gonna- into fashion again." <laughs> so he very much agreed that experience was a powerful contributor to understanding.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean that said, you you have to have interpretations of experience and arguments about it. So I I think they interact. I think he Fair was enough. perhaps being being too modest. He you know he was he was trying to be very modest and very generous in the especially in the later years of his life, which um which I appreciate, although sometimes dulled his memory of uh, what exactly had happened. So,
0: and the other thing I want to mention about the. The Monetary History of the United States, you said he was seen as a crank because he rejected, say, mathematical theory and econometrics. And he's mainly seen as a crank for a long time because he thought money was important. No one, it wasn't just that that book, you know, made people understand inflation. They just thought money wasn't important. And they thought something was literally wrong with him because he was obsessed with it. And yeah. um, so you got we have to give him credit for that. It's really important. <laughs>
1: I mean, I think that, yeah, that so there's a, a moment when he's testifying before Congress and Paul Samuelson is testing before Congress and and Paul Samuelson is like really making fun of him. He's like, well, some people think you can like measure this and that and call it M2 and say you understand everything. And like, that's just foolishness. And L- Friedman's like in the same room with him, you know? And so um he was willing to put up with that. And so I think that's something I came to appreciate Later in the book, you know, and 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 amid our own debates about intellectual diversity, is that like, wow, you know, within the context of the economics world, he kept this sort of heterodox set of thinking alive, and he was willing to be completely unpopular. He was willing to be laughed at. He was willing to, you know, really fight with other people and have them just mock him because he had the belief in his own ideas, you know. And so I think it's it's a very to me, is a case study in why we need to think about things in lots of different ways, not just one uniform way, and why disciplinary orthodoxy can be really stifling and and really crippling. Um, so I would say, yeah, he's stuck with money. The other thing I I do try to say is I I agree that, you know, economists missed the story on money for a large part. The other thing I, you know, I trace the history of the Federal Reserve in some detail. For a long time, the Federal Reserve basically followed the treasury and it really wasn't independent and it really was, they used to say money's a veil. It's not, it just kind of mirrors other things. And in some ways for much of its history in the 20th century, the Fed was kind of mirroring what other actors did and it was trying to support the treasury. And so it really wasn't until the Johnson era when there was a divergence between, you know, what different parts of the federal government wanted and needed and Johnson was exerting political pressure, that 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 became problematic. And so I think what Friedman and Schwartz did by using history is they were able to step out of this unique, you know, period of time. So the the Treasury-Fed Accord is like 51, um, which is when the Fed becomes more independent from the Treasury Department. But that doesn't really, it takes a while for that to take. But as these economists were coming up, say, from the outbreak of war, the 40s to the 50s, that pivotal decade, the, the Fed is basically neutered. And it's basically passive, and it's sort of secretive, and no one's paying attention to it. So Friedman and Schwartz use history to say, like, let's step out of where we are now. Let's go back. Let's go all the way back to the post-Civil War era. Let's march through um, the progressive era. Let's see what the Fed did in 1920, in a crisis of 1920-21, Let's see what they did in the 1930s. And then you see different things when you get out of your immediate sort of time-space bubble. So I think they used history to kind of give themselves new perspectives on what was happening in the present. And that is what enabled Friedman to see forward and to say, yeah, here we are today, but based on what happened yesterday, I can tell you, here's what's going to happen tomorrow. And and he was absolutely right.
0: Let's move on to his political economy, which... uh you know, you can make either the half-full or half-empty case, I think, pretty well, uh, but I want to hear you make it. Uh, wh- what did he achieve So in, you're terms about... poli- in terms of public policy and and what, what he would have called uh, philosophy about the role of government in, in the economy and in our lives?
1: Gosh, so I've got, like, another list of, you know, policy things that I can tick off that have Friedman's traces from— uh, the fact that income tax is withheld from our paycheck, and that there's not a draft, uh, or the draft is um, sort of on ice of a, a volunteer-paid armed forces, um, the negative income tax and EITC, um, which I think we still see as a really important policy model in um, today's discussions of kind of relief and, and poverty alleviation. That's
0: the earned income tax credit, EITC. Right. right.
1: Um, and then, uh, the idea of using vouchers for, um, education, um, he was also in favor of drug legalization, which we're increasingly seeing. Um, so there's a lot of really specific proposals, um, you know, even the idea of sort of competition in the mail services, uh, there was limited competition in his day, but there's much more now, So a lot of these actually come right out of capitalism and freedom, and a lot of them have the same logic of prices. Let's let prices do some of the work that we previously have assigned to agencies or regulators or laws, or let's strip back to more of a framework and let prices run within that framework. So I think he had an enormous impact. And one one reason I came, excuse me, One reason I had some doubts towards the end of the time of publication of calling him the last conservative is that I think his policy ideas and his orientation and outlook became influential far beyond conservatives. It it became a sort of way to think um, about policy and how it would work um, to ask, what would it look like if we let the market decide? Or what would it look like if we injected. Um some market incentives into this world, and this was not something that just Republicans or conservatives did. This was something that Democrats started to do. You know, some of the biggest deregulatory moves came in the Carter administration, so for instance, deregulating transportation, airlines trucking, all of that, and that is sometimes uncomfortable for people to remember because they'd prefer this black and white, one side thinks this, the other thinks this, I can pick my side. Um, But the fact is that lots of people came to conclusions similar to Friedman over the course of the late 20th century that the first pass attempt to kind of regulate and structure various economic markets by the federal government was not really working. It was having big efficiency costs. And so Friedman really helped articulate that um, and convince people of it. I actually think that really his academic work was more convincing. I think in some ways, the fact that he became such a political figure might have created some reluctance to um, take seriously what he was saying. So I think his actual power did come from his academic work and from the way that he left an imprint on people who studied economics and then came up into, um, you know, positions of power in the political system and had this different way of thinking that he had helped seed in academic institutions. And we haven't touched on law and economics, but that's another piece of the book that I unpack. And so there was another kind of vector of his influence, which was which was in legal thinking um, and in encouraging lawyers to think about um, incentives and use the tools of economic analysis. And so Friedman really helped popularize this approach, not just within economics, but within lots of academic fields. So, I mean, it, it, when I start thinking about it, it's it's hard. It, there's so many places that you see traces of him. And of course, it's not all Friedman, um, but he became a convenient entry point for people to have these different ways of thinking about what should the government do or how should policy be designed.
0: So I made my list. It's basically the same. Um I add. I added. He made free market beliefs a little more intellectually acceptable. Um, but what I think is fascinating, and maybe you disagree, is that in 2023, he's a punching bag. Is more than anything else, his name is invoked. It's actually started with the great um, the financial crisis of 2008, which many. Paul Samuelson laid it at his door, um, implying, I think grossly and correctly, that the financial crisis was due to deregulation, Friedman, Friedmanian laissez-faire, which is absurd in my view. Um, and it, Friedman was dead at that point, so it was kind of an unfor- unfortunate thing. But he, he gets blamed for that. He's called a neoliberal. He's blamed for the what's called neoliberalism now, which is um, smaller government, less regulation, lower taxes, austerity—you name it. And the irony is, is that he didn't achieve any of those things. <laughs> and when I interviewed him in 2006, he was very depressed about—not depressed, but what he would call realistic—about his intellectual legacy, saying that so many of the things he cared deeply about he had no impact on the, the size of government, the size of taxes, the size of regulation, and. All those things you're talking about, the the intellectual legacy of his impact in so many disparate ways and so many disparate areas, I think it's uh, interesting that nobody invokes him. You're right. He's in the air, but Hayek, for example, has done better. People go back now and read Hayek who didn't read him before. I don't think people read Friedman so much. They're certainly not reading his Newsweek columns. They would profit from reading uh, Capitalism and Freedom. It's still a great book, in my view, and a fascinating book uh, written 60 years ago, roughly. Um, but it's a—I I find it shocking how little his explicit intellectual influences is on policy today. Do you agree or not?
1: Um, you know, I don't agree, but I think some of what you said is is worth unpacking a little bit. So let me start with this. Um, you know, blaming him for the, the GFC. I think this is goes back to the earlier point that um, people want an easy story with a hero and a villain, and they want to say it's Friedman and his bad ideas that created this problem. So another way to look at the rise of deregulation is to kind of trace back, like, well, when did deregulation really start, especially in the financial sector? And it actually started during the inflationary episode of the 1970s when banks Successfully argued they needed to be free of regulation in order to deal with this very volatile economic climate. Well, guess who spent their whole life trying to say we shouldn't have inflation because all sorts of bad things can happen, right? Friedman. So I I wouldn't trace it to his ideas. I would trace it to the actions of banks trying to navigate an uncertain economic climate. And I go into that in some detail in the book.
0: Yeah, but I would just add that uh, when we started bailing out banks, uh, which was also in the 70s and goes through relentlessly each decade. Milton Friedman opposed all those things, explained that we're a profit and loss system, not a profit system. And if you take out the losses, you're going to have reckless search for profits. Uh, to say that that had nothing to do with the crisis is blind. You can debate how much it had to do with it, but uh, I I've just, assumed, just saying it's deregulation and that's Milton's fault is not thoughtful.
1: <laughs> right. I, and then I would say also... You know, a lot of times the story we get in the mainstream media about what is happening is still a sort of Keynesian fiscal story. And so another story is we had really low interest rates. They were artificially low, unwisely low, and it created a bubble. And then the bubble popped, right? So that's a totally different set of explanations that like you simply won't hear in most quarters. Um, so I think that one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is just sort of lay out these different narratives and say, we, we don't, let's be careful of thinking we know what we know because there's a completely different way to look at it. Um, in terms of today, I actually do think, I think he's more relevant than ever. And I think he is being discussed, but in a couple of unexpected ways. One is I think he's become, um, A figure in debates within the Democratic Party and on the left in that Friedman has come to symbolize a sort of centrist, democratic um, approach, which is more market-friendly, that a segment of the more progressive left would like to do away with. So you'll see there's been a whole raft of attacks on Friedman lately. And at first, I thought these were sort of misplaced because I'm like, you know, Friedman is not driving the action among national conservatives, you know, and then the new kind of currents of thought on the right. But I think this reflects that he has become in or he became very important also to the Democratic Party and to centrist liberalism. So you see attacks on him. I mean, Joe Biden has attacked him. There's been a whole raft of articles in the New Republic, all these different magazines attacking him. And I think that's really an intramural dispute on the left which to me says like volumes about Friedman's influence that he's traveled so far across the political spectrum that he's now kind of a, a punching bag in that place. Um I would say one of the reasons Hayek comes up more, um, and I think that there hasn't been as much information about Friedman, which hopefully has been changed, but it's easier to talk about Hayek because he has less immediate baggage in the United States. And so it's interesting like towards the end of his life, Samuelson kind of said something along the lines of, well, Hayek was right after all and blah, 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 blah. And then he summarized what Hayek said. And I'm like, you know, this is really Friedman, but Samuelson doesn't want to say Friedman because like he knows Friedman. And whereas Hayek is like the man from outer space who you can like safely invoke. So I think that's a lot of it, that Hayek in some ways is a proxy for Friedman because he doesn't have the same... um. The same pieces. And then I will say, you know, the big hit to Friedman's reputation really was um the expansive monetary policy and the low interest rates post-GFC and the lack of inflation appearing. And so that, that led to a lot of people saying this doesn't these insights no longer hold. Um, this is no longer accurate. Friedman's no longer relevant. He sort of no longer has anything to say. And then I think that. Can be counterposed. Then we saw, you know, this enormous surge in M two in the pandemic, and you had, you know, Jay Powell saying like, oh, like a million years ago that used to matter, but it doesn't really matter anymore. And then lo and behold, you had the bulge of inflation come that would have been predicted. So I think the story is a lot more complicated. I I go into this just a little bit in the in the conclusion, and I you know, there's places your listeners can go to unpack this, but there's some arguments that in the wake of the GFC, this expansionary monetary policy came along with increased reserve requirements and banks were really sitting on that money. So it wasn't really circulating. So I think um, you always have to pay attention to the institutional context. And I think that's one thing that Friedman did say and admit later that he didn't pay enough attention to the ways that things could change. And by this, I mean, you know, whether you're getting an interest rate on your checking account or not or where you're moving money. And so, it's always more complicated than just the money supply especially today because we have so 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 much diversity in the financial system but stepping back to that 3000 you know 30,000 foot view um what like a 25% annual increase in m2 you know the the Friedman theory would be like you can't have that and not have inflation like you just it's not there's no way and so lo and behold we see that so i think there's plenty of grist for the mill to kind of unpack what happens next, and I don't know where we are next, right? I don't know if we're going to eventually end up with like Volker Shock Part Two, or we're going to get that great soft landing. So we'll see. It's still kind of in process.
0: That's all very well said. Um, I want to add. I mean, I've done a. I've interviewed him. And we have two episodes. We broke that into two interviews. Talked to a number of people about him over the years, and I, I want to add one thing and and share some uh, things that I miss about Melton. Even though I was part of the, I was surprised at how little I turned to him in the last 15 years, and your book forces me to remind myself that there's a lot of underlying influence that he that he had on me, and one of the things that we haven't talked about is he was an extraordinary communicator and teacher of of abstract ideas. There's so many uh, brilliant phrases and and things that he conveyed that stick with uh, with us, uh, I'll pick a, just a few uh, that, that we haven't talked about, I don't think. Uh, people spend their own money on themselves more carefully than they spend other people's money on other people. That's a whole world of political economy in one sentence that he was able to capture. He would say the secret to good policy isn't to get the right people in power, It's to get the wrong people to do the right thing because their incentives are such. Um, He would say that an increase in spending is a tax increase, whether it's borrowed or taxed. Um, He said that being pro-business is not pro-market and that most people in business don't like markets. You mentioned in the book, he argued that you should try to maximize profits without fraud and not be socially responsible and let that profit – it's an example of his price – uh, respect and and in a way and um, the last thing I would add though and I think I'd love to get your reaction to it is he's one of the last people it, it, the two politicians he influenced probably the most are Reagan and Thatcher they along with him would could expound eloquently on the power of freedom that is kind of in and of itself and you write beautifully about the clash potentially between freedom and equality. (coughs) Excuse me. But that's kind of dying. I don't see that in our discourse. I think people who defend freedom on on its own, for its own sake, have lost uh, the moral high ground. He held it in his day. He said it well. um, And it seems to be uh, on the wane.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that eventually became kind of the core value for him. And there's a, a moment in the 50s when he's really struggling with um, this understanding that, you know, that came from Simons and that came from his other teacher, Frank Knight, that, you know, capitalism can generate inequality and that's to be feared, sorry, inequality. And so then how much do you hem in freedom to trade off against inequality? And so he struggled with that for a while, and eventually decided that the sort of core value was freedom and that that was what enabled you to kind of set your North Star and orient yourself and that that it was an ethical value unto itself because it allowed people to make their own choices. So I think that was very compelling in the Cold War era Um, when we had a sort of example of what the lack of freedom looked like. I think freedom is Achilles' heel and something that I... Was really never able to figure out was how he talked so much about freedom and, and seemed, um, didn't really apply that to this really glaring case of unfreedom, which was the segregated South in his own country. And he just did not, that did not resonate with him as an example of a lack of freedom. I think because he interpreted it as, as not just a government thing, but as, as what private citizens were doing. And so, That I think is one of the reasons why his ideas of freedom don't resonate in our current moment because you sort of look and say like, if you care so much about freedom, like why weren't you, why weren't you more committed to this cause that was really based about people not having freedom to vote, to go to school, to have their own livelihoods, to be free from violence? Like, why didn't you care about that? So I think it rings hollow today. And I think that's too bad because there are elements of um There are still elements that I think have ethical power of letting people guide and design their own lives. And the question always, you know, within this type of discussion is, where does your freedom begin and my freedom end? And how do we deal with those conflicts and those edges? And I think he hoped there weren't those conflicts. And so in some ways, he doesn't provide a resource for us because he he tended not to engage those most deepest and difficult questions.
0: My guest today has been Jennifer Burns. Her book is Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. Jennifer, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed our conversation.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.